How's it going, everybody? And welcome to another episode of the 30-Minute Misconduct, our dozenth episode, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I know we have a lot to get to tonight, uh, Billy. It's going to be one of those episodes that probably trends toward the 40-minute uh, misconduct here. Uh, we have a lot we want to talk about. We're recording this shortly after the Stars' uh, 4-1 win over Montreal on Tuesday. Uh, this will be coming out Wednesday, so hello from the past. Uh, but before we get into all of that, um, we want to uh, address Sunday's episode, or lack thereof, I guess, and, and apologize for that. We had a lot going on. Uh, not only were you watching your Red Sox win the World Series, Billy Leroy, uh, but you were in the act of moving, um, which uh, anybody that's ever done that knows how much time that takes up. So uh, we apologize again for the uh, for the missed episode, but uh, we'll try to uh, make it up to y'all tonight uh, with what should be a uh, a pretty action-packed episode, man. First road win. We did it. We did it. We did it in honor of Halloween and in honor of Jim Montgomery's mom. Dor- was, it, was it named Dorothy, I think? I, I, that sounds right. I was, yeah, that sounds I think right. It, I think it was Dorothy. I don't know how I could have already forgotten, but... I think I saw your tweet that said, put the C on uh, Dorothy Montgomery, so... Yeah, she's like the most typical grandma imaginable. They interviewed her on the broadcast, and she was talking about how she's so excited for Jim, and that she gets really nervous watching games because... You know, it really matters to her. She wants to see a win, and they got a win for her. Unbelievable. Unreal. Not only a win for Dorothy, but a win for Jason Spezza. Uh, The Millennium Mark, the big K for Jason Spezza's thousandth game. Uh, The boys uh, went out celebrating last night, it looked like, uh, before the game, which, man, some bad juju if you believe in that, to celebrate before you actually take the ice for your thousandth game, but it didn't matter. Uh, He took the ice tonight in the Stars 4-1 win. Uh, let's get into uh, let's get into some quick hits, I guess, about uh, about this, about some trends. We've missed uh, you know three games at this point since we've talked to you guys last here on the Thirty Minute Misconduct. So for me, you just you know the first quick hit is you can't overstate how important this road win was. You really can't because you know they they go out on Sunday and just an absolute an absolute stinker against Detroit, starting the road trip off in the worst way imaginable. Just a really poor effort, I think, and and not for a lack of wanting to win. Obviously, they're they're already worried about the road woes, uh, but but a really terrible effort against a team that I think had one win coming into the game, and it wasn't the fact that they lost necessarily. It was it was the effort. So you know, coming into tonight's game, Montreal's a tough place to play, even when they're down, uh, and I think they've overperformed a little this year, but but they're playing uh, playing pretty well, and, and Montreal's a tough place to win anyway, but. Man, if you don't get if you don't get this win tonight, you're staring down Toronto, Washington, Boston, Columbus is is the end of this road trip, and and you're zero and two, and you know you're you're zero for on the road, and and that's a really a uh, different looking back half of of the road trip or so if you don't pick this one up tonight. You could have seen Sunday's loss coming from a mile away. The fact that the Stars hadn't won a road game, Detroit only had one win so far. They hadn't won at home. Why does that always happen? Why do these trap games always come true? And nobody else seems, I mean, I know all Stars fans think that they can see these games coming, they can predict these losses, but we knew that this was going to be a loss miles ahead of time. Why does that always happen? Well, I think the, I mean, the very definition of a trap game is, I mean, it's it's a cliche and it doesn't always happen, uh, especially to the truly the truly great teams, but I mean, they're called that for a reason. It, it, it arose as a cliche and as a saying for a reason. 
Um, and I think that we, we definitely have some bias in thinking that the Stars are the only team that, that does it, but they certainly aren't. I mean, it happens. And if you look statistically, just if you just want to play the probability, the Red Wings were on pace to win like eight games. <laughs> like, like that's just not going to happen, right? That's just not going to happen. Like, they were like 1-7-2 and two or whatever, whatever their record was, whatever their awful record was. They're going to get some victories. No matter how bad you are in the NHL, you still have NHL players, you know, to some extent. And you're going to get some wins. I mean, you're not going to actually win eight games on a season. That's crazy. That's like the, you know, you go 3-0 to start the season. It's like, oh, on pace for 82, baby, let's go. Like, it's it, it just doesn't happen. No season is going to be that, that bad. It's going to be awful. And I think Detroit will be historically awful because they're just so caught in transition between losing all their aging superstars and, and not quite having anything to really transition to to their younger guys. But, yeah, I mean, it, it happens. And and I, I think that if this game, if, if the Stars had been 2-0 on the road coming in instead of 0-2 or 0-3 or whatever they were, uh, 0-2, I guess, that, that it would have been a different story. But, man, just, just compounding everything else and, and, and factoring in everything else, that's uh, that was a tough one. But but like I said, and, and that's kind of my quick hit number two, I guess, is that under Jim Montgomery, I've really liked, uh, I don't know if you want to call it resiliency or, or bounce back ability or whatever term you want to use. But I've really liked so far that, you know, there's been some poor efforts um, and then there's there's been some poor streaks. I mean, you look at the terrible road trip, the loss to Minnesota, and then they have three days to think about it and they come back out and beat the Kings. And I don't care how bad the Kings are or aren't or whatever. I think that, you know, you have that long to stew on losing some games in a row, the things you're doing wrong, you come back out and take care of business and then you beat Anaheim and then you go and have this, this crap game against Detroit and it's, well, damn, we're, we're Owen three on the road. That's a terrible team. We played awful. There's not a lot of good to even take from that game. And now we have to go to Montreal and then we have to go to Toronto and then we have to go to Washington and then we have to go to Boston. But instead they come out, they weather, they weather a storm in Montreal for sure in the first period, but they find a way to get a win um, they had a pretty good effort overall, especially, you know, after that penalty shot saved by Bishop from then on out, I thought it was the stars game to lose and, and they got it done. Tonight was one of those games that they desperately needed to happen. Like you said, the first period was terrible, got off to a horrible start. You're thinking, Oh, here we go. Another road loss. And it was just one of those nights where no matter what happened, all the shots off the post, the penalty shot, they found a way to win. And that's the kind of win that could hopefully start to spark them towards more road wins and finally give them some confidence. Because you got to think, in their heads, they're thinking about the way last season ended and the fact that they're already 0-3 on the road this season. That's got to start getting to you. Like, you know, you forget that these guys are human beings and their confidence is probably going to start to drop a little after you've lost so many road games. So it's an, a game like tonight is just a perfect catalyst for what could be a hopefully a, a, at least 500 remainder of this road trip. Yeah, and, and you brought up a couple of points that, that I wanted to talk about too. The the first thing is, you know, you brought up the posts, you brought up the penalty shot save, you brought up how bad the Stars were. I think the shots were 10-3 in the first period in favor of the Canadians. Quality scoring chances by Owen Newkirk's count on the post game were like 6-0 in the first period. It was it was ugly. It was ugly, and it was it was unquestionably a combination of Ben Bishop and and luck that that the stars were even in that game going into the second period. But you know what? It's sometimes you have to have that. 
You know, there's there's going to be games, home, road, and, and every scenario imaginable throughout the course of an NHL season where you just have to have that. Sometimes you just have to have a little luck on top of on top of everything else. And tonight the Stars got it in the first period. They got that luck. Um, ben Bishop was was fantastic, which is another thing you have to have to win on the road. Your goal has got to show up more often than not. It's it's pretty rare to just go, you know, outscore somebody on the road on pure offensive ability and, and not get a good game from your goalie. That's pretty necessary on the road. Um, and and they hung in there. They they rolled with the luck. And what I like is that, you know, it, luck doesn't do you any good if you don't capitalize on it after the fact, right? So you get the luck, you get the post, you get the play from Bishop. He makes that save on the penalty shot, and it's like the Stars kind of caught their collective breath a little bit and sat back and said. Okay, we 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 were given this, we were given this luck, and and now let's do something with it. And that's when they really kind of started to to roll, um, and and really kind of took the game over there in the second period, and, and eventually outlasted Montreal. And and the other thing you brought up is the way I evaluate. I think usually road trips is is I want to see the team come back with with half the points. I'd like a team to get you know three quarters of the points at home. Half on the road, you know, that sets you up for a really, really nice season. And, and three quarters of the points at home is probably unachievable. But, you know, you, you factor in, um, you know, a long homestand or, you know, whatever home ice advantage you have and, and being in your own bed. And, and, and you want to just you want to be better at home than on the road. That's, that's just how most teams typically are. But, but a road trip like this, I mean, you set up for six games along to the season. This is one I want to see him come back with with six points. I mean, it's it's that simple. You go out for six games, uh, including a back to back. You come back with half the points. I consider that, especially for this team and how they've been, I consider that a success. I think. And when you've been looking at the schedule coming into this six game road trip, you could look at it as, oh man, this is horrible timing. The Stars have been so bad on the road. This is going to end up tragically. Or you could look at it as, if they are able to figure this out, this could be a blessing in disguise. They got the. I think this is their longest road trip of the season. It is. Yep. So it is. So you're getting that out of the way early, and it might help these guys find the confidence to start winning road games again. So it may not even be the negative road trip that I at least was thinking that this was going to be. This could be a positive thing, and this could turn the whole road mentality around. Yeah. Some other things that that I definitely wanted to uh, to get into. One, the depth scoring continues. I mean, if you want to pull a negative from from tonight's game in the last, you know, several games, Jamie Benn was pointless in like six games coming into this. He ended up getting a point on on the Radulov empty netter tonight, uh, but pointless coming in after or after you know six games, like I said. But but the depth scoring is is still there. I mean, Devin Shore has been fantastic as of late. Spezza, we've we've talked about already on this podcast how good um, he's been. Uh, Lindell had the goal tonight. Um, you know, Fox and Shore were both really good on that on that shorthanded goal that that put the game away tonight. Haskinen got a second of the year on a really really nice play, and I just I really like what what Shore's doing right now in particular. I think that it kind of goes back to on the post game show they were talking about something that I also kind of have noticed with with Jim Montgomery is that these guys aren't afraid to make plays anymore when they lose. I think that's why they lose because they they try not to lose, especially on the road. And you can't play not to lose. You have to go play to win. And and Montgomery, that's what he wants. He wants that relentless effort. He wants that aggressiveness. He wants all those they're cliche buzzwords, but they're true. That's what he wants. It, no matter who you are, if you're you know Jamel Smith, Jason Dickinson, Devin Shore, Roddick Foxa, or you're Jamie Benn, Tyler Sagan, Alexander Radulov, you want to play the same way. You want to use what you have. 
You want to be aggressive. You want to go make plays and not be scared to make a mistake. And I thought Shore, especially on his two assists tonight, um, did a really good job of that because he carried the puck in the zone both times. And you just see the Canadians get sucked into him, um, you know, because he was he was going to the tough areas and, and they get sucked in a little bit. And then he has the vision and the ability to make a play back to the center of the ice, um, you know, across the crease for Lindell and, and then right on Haskinen's stick for for a beauty of a shot, not to discount what Haskinen did um, on that play. That shot was fantastic. But it's just it's really nice to see guys down the lineup with the confidence that that I don't think has been there in in the last couple of years to to not be afraid to make a mistake because you know as as former athletes you know both of us you know you play terrible when you play tight and and you play not to make a mistake you have to go out there and play to make the play not to be conservative and and make sure that you don't mess up um, and and miss you know even even making an attempt. You don't want to be thinking too much, and when you haven't scored in a while, you start to think too much, and you start to overanalyze what you've been doing. But it's amazing how quickly this storyline has changed over these last two weeks. From we're thinking that oh man, if the top line doesn't score, this team's never going to score a goal. To now where the the depth guys are carrying the offensive load, and here we are. It's been like two weeks since Jamie Benn or Tyler Sagan have scored a goal. It's just amazing how quickly that storyline can change. Yeah, and and who knows? Maybe you know it's 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 a weird thing for me too. Whenever somebody scores an empty netter that that hasn't played or scored in a while, and and you had both of those because you know Radulov comes back from from whatever he was dealing with and and gets the empty netter, which is all well and good. Um, and and then Ben gets the assist. So it's it's always just interesting to me. I think um, to to think about you know, the impact that that can have on somebody. Cause you never know. I mean, I guess, you know, I know I do a lot of, a lot of talk about baseball and, and use a lot of baseball analogies, but I mean, when I played, if you're over nine going into an at bat and, and you just haven't been able to hit anything and then you hit one off the end of the bat and it, it just like goes 18 different directions and, and gets all squirrely and sneaks through the infield somehow. Like sometimes that's all it takes. And, and maybe for, for, I mean, Radulov, it's not as much a slump as just being hurt, but maybe for Ben, who knows, maybe that, maybe that does something just so he's not thinking about, man, I don't have a point in such and such games. Um, I guess the, the last thing that I know we wanted to get to was, was kind of the, the meritocracy, I think that's been established by Montgomery. Um, not that it hasn't been this way before, but I think that Montgomery already in a short time here has proven himself to be, you know, a player's coach, but also a coach that's very honest and very blunt um, and and very uh, transparent about what's going on with the lineup. Uh, and he's proven that he's he's not afraid to bench somebody. You know, Pitlick, I believe, was the uh, was the odd man out tonight, and and that's a guy that I don't want to say untouchable. That's a guy that people have really liked here, and and I've really liked. Um, and and it wasn't necessarily an indictment completely of him, but. You know, just in general, it seems like Montgomery, outside of you know the Bins and Sagans and Radulovs of the world, pretty much isn't afraid to uh, to take anybody out of the lineup. He's got these guys on a short lease, that's for sure. I mean, Pitlick just scored last week against Anaheim. I thought he had been looking pretty good, especially when he got paired up with Ben and Sagan. But apparently, it doesn't take much to have Monty crack the whip and let me look at Rope Hints. He sent him down to Austin pretty quickly. It doesn't take much to for Monty to find replacements for these guys, which I certainly appreciate. Well, and it makes you wonder too, you know, as, as high as I am on Val Natushkin and as, as good as I think that he still can be, I think that his talent and his skill and his ability is just too great still 
um, to, to not be productive in the NHL. And I think a lot of it, uh, there was another uh, question on the postgame show that, that I kind of agreed with a lot. You know, a lot of it, I think, has to do with the coaching that was here in Dallas and, and kind of Val falling into, I think, an area where he was afraid to make mistakes. And, and for a guy that needs to use his size, go to the front of the net, not be afraid to go to the tough areas, carry the puck with speed um, and, and make plays that way, you can't be afraid to make those plays and you can't be afraid to screw up trying to make those plays. So, you know, whether it's an injury or, or whether it's, you know, it's it's a confidence issue or it's he's just not adapting well to, um, you know, being back and 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 the pressure that comes with being a, a high draft pick. I don't know. But, you know, that meritocracy conversation, it, it starts to get really interesting when you have, you know, Dowling playing really well. You have Shore playing out of his mind. You have Smith coming in and bringing the energy that he always does. Dickinson, I've loved, you know, basically all season. You got all these guys that you put Pitlick back in the lineup. Like, I don't think Nachushkin comes out just because of the, the top-end potential. But, I mean, maybe you start having the conversation, you know? I'm starting to get worried about the Val experiment again. I feel like it's kind of like a replay of what we saw before he left, where he's getting low time on the ice and then not a lot of results. And so that's starting to scare me. And then I start to, I'm starting to see more people call out, call for uh, Como's head. And the idea is simple, and it's true. You've got all these guys down in Austin, like Garyanov, that are doing tremendously well. Why not bring them up? I mean... Como has had some good games and some good moments, but I don't see any risk in replacing someone like that with Gurionov just to see what he can do because it's you're not taking that much of a risk there when Como is on and off with his production, you know. See, I'd I'd see that you are, or I'd say I guess um, I should say that's a funny uh, that's a funny phrase. I guess I should say that that I don't think that Como is the kind of guy that that you take out for a, a Gurionov type. But in this specific situation, um, the thing that stands out to me is there's still some specter of of Gurionov's play toward the end of last season with Texas and, and the playoffs and that sort of thing that I think is still hanging over him a little bit. I think that he really looked overwhelmed at times. Um, he really looked like the game was moving too fast for him, um, and and he's really settled in. Uh, in Texas this season, obviously, I mean, you don't you don't put numbers up, you know, like he is without being confident and feeling probably 100 percent better than he was toward the end of last year. But at the same time, there's there's probably a little a voice in the back of Jim Nill's head like, you know, if you bring him up to the NHL and he has one bad game, you know, it, it seems like an overreaction or an impossibility. But, you know, what if that one bad game somehow throws him back into something and he feels like he's overwhelmed again and he's frustrated because he's having so much success in the AHL and then it doesn't happen at the NHL. And and I think just the way things are going, I think Como's been fine. Um, I think that he probably belongs in the bottom six, if especially if guys like Shore and and um you know Fox and Dickinson and whoever else, although Dickinson, you know, finds his way down the lineup just because of the position he plays. But um it's it's a case where I don't think I'm ready to pull the trigger on Gurionov. Uh, just because as much success as he's had, you just never know with a guy like that, and and you don't want to you don't want to run the risk of of making that call too soon, uh, especially when things are going well depth scoring wise. Like yeah, Como maybe not be scoring every game, but it's not like the depth scoring hasn't been there lately. Um, and I think that's the kind of move you know similar to uh, to a Dowling. It's the kind of move you make when you need it potentially. You know what I mean? So. We'll see. I mean, it's a possibility, but but for now, I, I think the lineup is uh, 
is okay the way it is, but but we'll see. You know, Val is uh, making me, even me, who's uh, pretty high on him, making me a little nervous. I just want Monty to stop switching up all the lines every game. I really want to see Radulov get put back on the first line because... He was tonight. I mean, if you watch the game, he went in separated, but, I mean, everybody kind of indicated prior to the game that we'd probably see it, and we did. I mean, it it pretty much, I don't know if it went right back together, but it didn't didn't take long for the three of them to find their way back together, and I think that's going to be probably the one consistent, you know, pairing at the top that that we have this season for sure. Because it seems like that Radulov is probably the catalyst for... Jamie Van and Tyler Sagan, at least in this season so far. Well, I don't, I don't even know if it has as much to do with, with who Radulov is or if it's just the fact that you load up a line to that extent that, you know, what do you do? You know, if you have Jamie Ben, Tyler Sagan, and Alexander Radulov on a line, like, where do you look? Where do you defend? And then especially if you have them out there with, you know, a talented offensive player like Klingberg or, or Haskinen or, you know, even Lindell at times, it's it's – it's an overwhelming force of, of talent, I think, which is, you know, beyond any individual piece, there's just enough of it as a, as a group um, that I think it becomes difficult. So I would say moving forward, if Radulov is healthy, we probably see a lot more of that top line just kind of, you know, staying the way it is and then, you know, more shuffling happening um, in lines two through four. And, and especially with, it seems like Monty sometimes, you know, the, the line numbers are a little meaningless. He'll juggle those bottom, you know, six or nine guys a lot. But I think the top line is probably going to uh, be pretty steady. Monty was saying that he wanted to split Ben and Sagan up to try to help them out. And I'm like, you're not going to – I don't think putting Jamie Ben with somebody else on a second or third line type situation is going to help him. I think he needs to be scoring with Ben and Radulov. Or, I mean, Sagan and Ben need to be together. Then Radulov needs to help them out too. I'm not sure what putting them down to the second line is going to do because those guys have already figured it out. They're doing it on their own. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that it's, I don't want to say it was a message maybe that that Monty was sending or anything like that. I don't think that was it. But I think even he knows, you know, being here as even as as short a time as he has that, that Ben and Sagan have, they had that instant chemistry. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't happen often, especially when a guy gets traded in, um, but you just throw two guys together and, and they just click pretty much instantaneously. And that was Ben and Sagan. And, you know, every attempt, I think, ever to split them up, you know, going back as long as Sagan has been here has, has uh, not not bared fruit, for sure. I think it's, uh, it's, it's advantageous for those two guys to play together. And I think this is just a slump. It happens. You know, it, we talked about it at the beginning of the year. The, the pace that the three of them were on, you know, Ben Sagan and Radulov, was, was unsustainable, even for guys that talented. Like, it just doesn't happen. And, and I even talked about with the depth scoring that when it wasn't there, I wanted to see what happened. And, and it hasn't been there. And, and not every game has been pretty. The Detroit game was miserable in a, in a lot of different ways, pretty much every facet. But I'd say the majority of the time, we're trending toward at least, the majority of the time, you know, when, when those guys haven't been firing on all cylinders – Guys like Jason Spezza and Devin Shore and and Foxa even and and guys like that have, have kind of stepped up. Uh, Dickinson I've really liked and and kind of picked up some of the slack. So it ebbs and flows, um, and and I'm not too worried about it. So let's not you know, forget. We'll see. Let's not forget about sharpshooter Roman Polak. Oh my gosh! Did you see his quote after that goal? He said it doesn't happen often. Maybe five times <laughs> yeah. a year, which I think he, he, he yeah I think even five he, times he, a year is being a little bit over uh over uh, yeah. guessing there yeah because i think klingberg had like eight goals last year which is atypical for john klingberg for sure but 
Yeah, I I would not. If you gave me the over under at at four and a half goals for Roman Polak, I think I'd take the under pretty uh pretty swiftly. I'd probably throw the money down on that one. But I just like that he's a pretty good quote, man. I I you know for all the all the the talk that that surrounds his game and all the uh, the fun at his expense and and all that kind of stuff, I've actually thought he's been totally fine this season on the ice for one. Um, and, and off the ice, I think he's a really good quote and, and pretty entertaining and a good, uh, a good locker room guy. So good on him. Uh, it was a beautiful goal, probably the best one he's ever scored in the NHL, at least. I mean, who knows, but, uh, one of them, certainly it was, it was pretty, but I, I appreciated the fact that it was like back when, uh, gosh, I'm going to talk about baseball again, but back when I ever, if I ever stole a base, that, that's what I wanted to tell people. Like, I just wanted to stand there and take a bow and be like, everybody take a picture Everybody captured this moment in your mind because you're not getting very many of them. I tweeted after that goal. I was like, if you're the Anaheim Ducks and you allow Roman Polak to get that close to the net and make that kind of play, you need to just sell the team, move to Quebec and call it a day. Because how does that happen? Just pack it up. Just pack it up. Well, I guess with that, we can finally put to bed uh, some uh, some stars talk. I know we have some other stuff we want to get into, including uh, you and I are both subscribers to The Athletic now. I've been on the train a little bit longer, um, you know, just with, with my job. It was something that I kind of uh, have been following since the inception and, and um, been reading uh, stuff from as different cities have popped up, I guess, you know, up in up in Boston where I was. And, and now that Dallas has got it, gotten started up and, and Sean Shapiro, who we reference a lot, um, on the podcast here, but they had a story recently about a very interesting, very interesting Twitter account that I believe follows you, not me. Uh, even though it follows nearly a million people, it does not follow me yet, but it follows you. And, and I know it's something that you wanted to get into. Yeah. I'm one of many who have been followed by Zach Boychuk. And I remember, I think he's unfollowed me and followed me a couple times throughout our journey together. But when I first saw, when he showed up the first time I was thinking, Oh, that's pretty cool an NHL player just followed me on Twitter and then you go to his profile and you see that he's following 3,000, 300,000 people or 600,000, whatever it's at now. It's an astronomical number. You think. It's like almost 900,000 of both. I think, I think he has like 895,000 followers and like 870 something thousand that he's following. And he's got like, we mentioned this cause the story ran in the athletic about boy Chuck and, and his following and why he does it and how he does it. And, he said, I think the number he quoted is that he has some bot that follows like 20,000 people a day or something crazy like that. That's that's insane to me. At first, he was doing it all manually. He said he was, yeah, he was, just, sitting by th- hand. He was just sitting there on the bus or on the plane coming back from a game. And he would just sit there and follow, follow, follow people. And they would just blindly follow back. But it's been pretty lucrative for him because he said that he gets trips from it and endorsement deals. And he's now ending. He has more followers than a lot of the top NHL players in the league. And he's Zach Boychuk. Like he's not even in the NHL anymore. Nobody should know. He's like in Russia. Yeah, nobody should be thinking about this guy anymore. But because of his, I can't even call it genius because it's you know it's just pretty simple follow for follow. But because of his creative marketing scheme, he's built up probably a post hockey business for himself. Yeah, and I think it has a lot to do with how early he adopted Twitter. That was something the story went into as well. He was one of the first. His dad, I think, is in like IT or computers or something, and and turned him on to Twitter and said, "Hey, you need to uh, you need to get on this. It's going to be you know it's going to be big. It's going to be influential. It's going to be a good thing." 
Um, and, and he was actually getting chirped from all his teammates back in the NHL at the time, I think, just for, you know, for being on it. And, and nobody really understood it because, I mean, I think he got drafted in 08, potentially, something like that. And and it was kind of in the league around that time and a little later. And, and that's really when Twitter had existed. But that's when it started taking off. Because I remember, you know, we were in high school. And we were freshmen in what, 2008, 2009? Does that sound right? That school year? That's correct. And and that was kind of the first time. I was very against Twitter at the time, which now being a, a sports journalist for a living, was it seems silly. I eventually hopped on board, I think, like my sophomore or junior year. Who knows? But I think that's about the time it was becoming popular and, and people were starting to do it. So he was one of the early ones. And hey, man, it, if it's going to pay off, it's it's going to pay off for him. And, and yeah, it's not, a, uh, it's not a bad spot to be in heading into uh, – uh, I won't say retirement from the NHL because that's already happened, but retirement from hockey because he's still uh, he's still playing over there and, and getting things done like so many guys do when when their uh, when their NHL days are over. But man, uh, good on you, I guess. If it gets the gets the bills paid plus some, that's that's good for him. Yeah, Zach was a personal branding pioneer. They mentioned in the story that I think he was out like with the team one night and he was posting pictures of Cam Ward and the rest of the guys and. He was posting those pictures on Twitter, and some people within the front office were like, eh, I don't know if you should be doing that or not. But clearly, he had his head in the right place before all the rest of the world figured out how to do personal branding. And yeah. what a random place for this to happen, and such a random follow to get from this guy, but good for him. Speaking of celebrity follows, I want to make sure to uh, to humble brag here on the podcast because somehow, you know, I was talking about when I first got on Twitter in high school and, and one of the things I liked to do back then to bring up baseball, geez, for a third time tonight, I guess. But, you know, hey, if you're going to listen to me talk about anything, it's it's probably going to come up. I'm a baseball guy at heart. But anyway, one of my one of my favorite early Twitter uh, experiences, what I would I would I would follow and talk to guys that were in the, are you familiar with the Arizona Fall League? You remember what that is? What I used to follow pretty much religiously? I can't say I do, but sure. It's essentially, it's it's kind of like guys that are right on the cusp of, of being Major League ready. Um, you know, kind of those double-A plus guys, triple-A um, guys that are that are really kind of ready to, uh, to, to take the next step or, you know, are, are needing just kind of a little extra, a little extra time um against some big league competition and and they're not big leaguers but the arizona fall league is a very prestigious um fall league uh for for professional baseball players and it's where a lot of guys got their start um guys like will middlebrooks if you guys remember him i uh, used to you know talk to him on twitter um some other guys but but kind of the biggest name uh was a was a little uh well known now hardly known then a uh, guy named mike trout um, and, and I followed him and I got the follow back, um, back when he wasn't really anybody. Um, but I had heard the buzz cause I mean, I'm just a, I'm a baseball nerd. Um, and I follow things that, that you guys probably couldn't imagine. Cause I know baseball for a lot of people is a pretty, uh, pretty boring sport and, and tough to get into. But for me, it's, it's, uh, it's always been my first love, but yeah. So I followed Mike Trout way back when. Um, used to kind of chat back and forth with him through, you know, Twitter DMs and all that stuff. And he, he followed me back and, and I figured once he got famous that, that <laughs> the road would come to an end, I guess I should say. And, and the messaging road eventually did. I'm sure he gets, you know, who knows how many now from, from people he follows, but he still follows me to this day. So I can claim I have a very famous, uh, very famous Twitter follower with a very good ratio because Mike Trout, 
He has 2.5 million followers on Twitter, and he only follows 2,379 people. So, instead of being one of Zach Boychuk's 876,000, I'm one of Mike Trout's 2,379. Somehow, someway, he still follows me on Twitter. I don't understand why. I don't know what I what content I bring to his life if he was ever uh, scrolling through his timeline, but but there I am. If so. you if you forget. Zach Boychuk, my biggest active follower follower right now is Lou Graham, the original voice of Foreigner. Oh boy! For some reason, you and your man—that's a conversation we should have one of these days on this podcast. Your obsession with uh, all things classic rock, man. It's been a, You're a freak. It's been a big week for me. Kiss announced their first leg of dates for the end of the road tour. The Stars got their first road win. I moved. It's been a crazy week, but Lou Graham. I have an even better ratio with him compared to you with Mike Trout because Lou Graham has 6,481 followers and he's only following 769. I have no idea why he followed me. He must just respect the fact that I'm this big classic rock diehard. But I would say that he's probably my biggest follower right now. Maybe he's afraid of you and he just wants to keep tabs on you. I don't think so. Maybe he just wants to know where you're at at all times. Are you ready to... uh... Are you ready to reveal to the people how many times you've seen Kiss in concert? Is that something that you want to put on the airwaves? <laughs> oh, I'm proud of it. I'm proud to say that I've seen them seven times, and now on the end of the road tour, I'm going to see them in Dallas, so that'll make it eight. I'm probably going to go to at least another show somewhere across the country, and then I'm going to try to go when it's Houston, Austin, San Antonio. So I'm probably going to end up at double digits with my attendance record at Kiss shows. That just blows my mind. It just blows my mind. I can't imagine. I think the the act that I've seen the most times in college, um, Lee Bryce, the the country singer, was uh, he came through. I went to uh, my undergrad at, at Stephen F. for for those that don't know, and and there's a little country bar in Nacogdoches called uh, Bonita Creek. Um, it's a uh, basically just a big uh, building to to drink beer in uh, and catch a concert every now and then. Uh, but, but they had some pretty good ones roll through and including Lee Bryce before he got, um, you know, his, his career is kind of, you know, I don't want to say back on the downswing, but, but he had a, a real big moment in the sun and, and on his way up to that, um, he came through Bonita Creek and, and my girlfriend and I, um, saw him and it kind of kicked off a weird, uh, not obsession, but kind of the way you are with Kiss. I think we saw Lee six times, including once with you, something like that. Um, but man, your your dedication to uh, to going to see uh, not even original Kiss, the half of the Kiss lineup or whatever that's still in the band is it's admirable. I'll say, you know what? It's it's not for me, but it's admirable. It could be. I might be able to see some of these original guys because the talk is that they're either going to bring back Ace Frehley, the original lead guitarist either full-time or, like, for select shows. And then there's some other original guys that they might bring up on stage. So I might get to see my original lineup of Kiss after all these years of seeing the quote-unquote fake lineup with half originals and half new guys. I'll give you less grief for the Kiss lineup than I will the Foreigner lineup. Let's put it that way. Because you and I, you you needed somebody to go to uh, to a Foreigner concert with up at the, at, uh, was it, Ch- it was a Choctaw, not Windsor, it was a Choctaw. You needed somebody to go with. And I was like, yeah, sure, whatever, man. And then I, I mean, I, I know who Foreigner is. It's not like I keep up with them then. You're like, oh, yeah, by the way, there isn't a single original member of Foreigner that's probably going to be at this show. And I was like, wait, what? 
So, yeah, you and I took a trip to Oklahoma once to see a foreigner cover band, so that was fun. But you have to admit, that was a good night. We got to gamble. We got to see. Oh, they're they're great. They're great. The music's fine. I, they're they're a lead singer. And it's, it's funny because it's getting to the point now where some of the guys that aren't original members but have been in the band like 15 years or something. It's it's like Foreigner 2.0. It's the weirdest. It's it's a weird scene. But it, yeah, I mean, it was fine. It was a good time. I thought my ability to attend classic rock concerts was going to start to dwindle over these next couple of years. But now that we're seeing these younger guys come into these bands and the the average age of like my favorite bands right now besides Kiss is like dropping down to like 50. So I've got another 20 years to see these guys. You're going to hit peak... Uh peak dad age and just be still seeing the bands from our dad's time well hopefully it'll help me out in some way because at that point i'll be like 40 years old and i won't be this 24 year old going to see (laughs) kiss it won't be as bizarre you are bizarre but we could talk all night i guess about how bizarre you are but uh, i guess we can cut it off there we are rapidly approaching as i mentioned that uh, would probably be the case rapidly approaching the 40 minute misconduct uh, so we will, uh, I guess, take that opportunity to wrap this episode up. Thank you guys for being patient with us uh, for not having the episode uploaded this weekend. Um, uh, glad we had a, a road win to come back and talk about tonight. Uh, we will be back on uh, Sunday for real this time. We will be there um, and we'll have some more uh, some more games to discuss. We will have the Toronto game and the Washington game. Two really big games to see if this uh, this road momentum can continue. So, uh, we'll see how the uh, the Stars fare Thursday against Toronto, Saturday against the defending Cup champion Capitals, uh, before they head to Boston and Columbus for the back to back for the back end of the road trip. See if they can keep the uh, the momentum going. So, thank you guys for listening. Um, again, sorry for no episode Sunday. Um, thank you guys for uh, for sticking around. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this one, and we will be back with you guys on Sunday. Mm-hmm.